leadership teams need to develop muscle memory on how do you actually behave during major uncertainty. When the rule book starts to break down, management team frequently find that the pattern recognition that they have developed over years doesn't work anymore. Hi, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. In today's episode, we're talking to two of our experts about their new research on corporate resilience and what differentiates companies that emerge from economic downturns stronger than they were going in. They recently wrote the article, Bubbles Pop, Downturns Stop, in the McKinsey Quarterly. Uh, Kevin Laskowski is a senior partner in our Chicago office and leads our corporate strategy service line. His client work spans strategy, mergers and acquisitions, and performance transformation. Mihir Mysore is a partner in our Houston office and a leader of our work in crisis response globally. Kevin and Mihir, welcome. Uh, Kevin, let's, let's start with you. Why has resilience become a topic of greater focus for clients these days? Uh, so thank you. Um, you know, the U.S. has seen uh, expansionary periods for roughly 8 to 10 years during any point in time over the last 50 years. Uh, we're in about year nine of economic expansion, which leads to the question of the sustainability of economic expansion um, in the U.S. But more, and, and more broadly uh, globally. And unfortunately, we cannot predict uh, when the next downturn or economic recession is coming. The running joke is that seven of the last three economic downturns have been predicted by experts. And our point of view is that the hit rate is probably not going to be higher for the next one. And what we've looked at here is companies that have navigated macroeconomic situations uh, in unique ways to create value and to separate themselves from their peers. Uh, but we can't, what we can say is that companies that pre- prepared early uh, emerged much stronger coming out of them. The second insight is that uh, that advantage that companies gained through the, through the downturn lasted for a long period of time. So this wasn't just about going through a do- downturn and coming out stronger. It was about a sustainable advantage that lasted for 10 years. There is a resilience playbook that's emerging if you look at if you look at the companies that have been successful in the past and what's likely to be different about the future that we'll share with you. Can you walk us through what you studied through the fact base that your conclusions were based on? So to build an understanding of resilience, uh, we turned to the data. And we looked at 1,500 companies in North America and in Europe uh, that were greater than a billion dollars in revenue, publicly traded, and had a trading history. Um, and we excluded a couple of sectors, uh, primarily around financial institutions, from this specific analysis only because uh, the metrics we were using um, uh, look different for financial institutions. We have run this, a similar analysis for financial institutions, and the, the key messages still hold. Then we took those companies and we looked at um, how they performed relative to their industry. And the metric we used as a gauge of performance was TRS, Total Return to Shareholders, And what we did is we looked at excess TRS, so the TRS delivered relative to the specific sector the company participates in. And then the third thing is for the companies that we found outperformed, we took a deeper dive to understand what was it that they did differently, and almost more importantly, when did they do it? Um, We simply developed this, what we call resilience power curve. And what this shows is for the time period of 2007 to 2011, the total returns to shareholders of all the companies in the sample ordered from lowest to highest. 
the average total return to shareholders we saw during that time period was 0%. So essentially, uh, no returns to shareholders over that four-year time period. Uh, 45% of the companies uh, during this time period had uh, negative returns to shareholders. Uh, then there's this group, the top quintile of companies, that actually did quite well. Uh, their average annual returns to shareholders was 9%, and the median in that group was something like 20, almost 20%. So it was, a, it was pretty good performance despite a really, really tough macroeconomic environment. Now, what we tried to do with this data then was to take it down to the sector level and looked at how companies outperformed relative to their sector. Well, so we took all companies in the consumer package uh, goods sector, and we did the same analysis. We, we, and what we find is a group of companies that we call the resilience. And these companies delivered, on average, 10% returns to shareholders annually every year during that time period. And this is significant because the average in this group was 4%. And so to, paint, to put a little color around that, if you had a, a company that had a $100 billion market cap, so a large consumer packaged goods company, at the beginning of the time period, at the end of 2011, just after four years, the value creation difference between them and the average would be $30 billion. And if you could extend that out over a 10-year time period, that excess value creation was $130 billion. So it makes a big, big difference. Um, what we actually see is that the outperformance of the resilience relative to the non-resilience extends for a long period of time. Um, what we find is that the resilience perform, outperformed the non-resilience by a factor of 150% over this time period. And if you look at how they compared to the S&P 500, it was essentially double the returns of the S&P 500. So being in this top quintile of resilient companies for your sector makes a huge difference and lasts a long period of time. The advantages sustain. As a matter of fact, 70% of the companies that were in the resilience coming out of the recession in 2011 are still in the top quintile today. So it's quite sticky in terms of the advantages that the resilience created during the last macroeconomic event. Thanks, Kevin. Mahir, can you tell us a little bit more about what these resilient companies did differently that the rest of us can learn from? So the first thing that we found out about them is that resilience outperformed on earnings, and EBITDA is, is, is the key metric that we used in this particular analysis, but, but they outperformed on earnings throughout, uh, almost quarter by quarter, and they managed to, uh, to, to drive recovery much faster uh, than, uh, than, than non-resilience did. On the revenue side, you know, one of the questions that we asked ourselves was, was, was resilience outperformance simply a function of their portfolio, right? If you, if you happen to be in a superior portfolio, uh, you know, you, you will end up outperforming in, 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 in the recession. Like, for example, if you happen to cater to uh, sort of a lower uh, income demographic uh, in, in, a CP, in, the, in the consumer packaged goods sector, you might end up seeing a bump in your business during the recession, right? And, 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 you know, so revenues are an indicator of whether you're seeing a bump like that. And so we looked closely at that, and we saw that while there was some explanation, if you, you know, once you average out all the sectors, there was some explanation for, for the portfolio effect, but by and large, the biggest effect was around EBITDA. Resilience were able to consistently, without fail, no matter what the outside conditions look like, 
able to grow EBITDA quarter by quarter without interruption. Compare that to the non-resilient. By the time the depths of the recession came around, resilience had an astounding 25-point higher EBITDA compared to non-resilience. On the revenue side, resilience and non-resilience somehow marched hand-in-hand until about 2009. Now, resilience did outperform, so there is a noticeable difference there by the time the trough happens. Uh, but, but, uh, but, but the real difference kicks in in, in, in the recovery time period. Uh, but the key takeaway for us at this point was, okay, clearly they're doing something different when it comes to EBITDA margins, uh, and, and that is a bigger explanation of their outperformance relative to an outperformance in revenue, although there is some outperformance in revenue. So then we asked ourselves, okay, let's try and find out what is actually driving this growth in EBITDA margin. Um, here you see the change in operating costs that resilience were able to do relative to non-resilience, both in the downturn period and the recovery period. The recovery period, by the way, is 2010 and after, and the downturn period is 2007 to 2009. So during the downturn period, what we saw was that resilience were able to cut their operating costs by by $0.5 for every dollar of revenue change, while uh, while uh, non-resilience ended up increasing their operating costs in the same time period. During the recovery time period, resilience were able to build on the momentum that they secured, and they were able to cut even faster for every unit of, 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 of revenue change. Now, part of this effect is obviously you know, explained by the fact that, that they did better on revenue, but by far, even when you account for that, you know, uh, they, they are doing something different when it comes to actually cutting costs. And, and improving operational effectiveness. It wasn't uh, necessarily the case that they timed the cycle. You know, we looked for evidence of that or any of that, but they, there was clear evidence that, that once the outlines of a recession became clear, resilience were simply able to move faster, cut costs, and increase earnings. You also noted that one of your more intriguing findings is that resilience were much more aggressive deal makers in selling off businesses, but also in making acquisitions. Can you tell us more about that? Um, resilience had uh, had had noticeably stronger divestiture and M&A programs. In particular, during the down cycle, they were able to divest more than non-resilience did, and they were able to acquire far more than resilience did, non-resilience did during the recovery period. Uh, of, of all the, the deals that resilience did, about a quarter of them were focused on divesting parts of their business. When we look at all the deals that non-resilience did, about 18% were focused on divesting parts of the business, and the balance was focused on acquiring. You compare that with acquisitions during the recovery, right? And, and you see that a, a whopping 96% of, of, of all the value uh, was really in, in acquisitions for resilience. Uh, non-resilience were also strong, but they were definitely behind the resilience as a group with 86% of all of their deals focused on acquisitions. So it sounds like the resilient companies freed up more resources to take advantage of acquisition opportunities and otherwise give themselves the ability to take advantage of a buyer's market. Can you say a little bit more about that? Um, resilience were able to create optionality, right? And, and, and in our analysis, this shows up much more as financial uh, deleveraging and, and optimizing the balance sheet. But the focus was really on creating both operational and financial flexibility to enable them to get through the recession. You know, in the, during the downturn, resilience were able to cut uh, about $1.2 for, 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 for every unit of capital 
uh, and uh, while, while, while for non-resilience, they, they ended up growing debt quite dramatically. In the recovery, uh, th- this flipped over, and resilience actually focused on increasing their leverage ratio, while non-resilience continued to try and catch up and, and, and reduce their, their, their debt to capital. The biggest takeaway for us was the fact that resilience were able to move faster, change their leverage ratio, you know, right at the downturn, and while non-resilience, you know, played catch-up. While we don't want to predict the next downturn, how do you think the next one will be different from the one that you studied? Uh, the uh, the analysis that we did was uh, was was certainly focused on the last recession and. And, and while we think some of those lessons from the last recession apply, there are, there are three reasons why we believe that there will be a difference. The first is that m- most sectors are experiencing various forms of digital disruption, uh, either, either, either as customers demand a private, frictionless, uh, you know, uh, a mobile experience uh, for all aspects of the customer journey, or as businesses discover new ways to drive efficiency through using advanced analytics and digital techniques. Back in 2008, coming into the last recession, there were, there were really only two tech-enabled companies, so to speak, that were absolutely dominating their, their, their particular sectors, right? Coming into this recession, the companies that are dominating, uh, you know, uh, uh, seven out of the ten are digital natives, right? And that fundamentally, we think, shifts the landscape because these digital natives uh, are able to disrupt their sectors. They have, in, in some cases, an ingoing advantage when it comes to costs, which, which will mean that they, are, uh, that, that they can win should they choose to play in certain parts of the sector. This disruption isn't slowing down. As we all know, uh, you know it, back in 2013, right after uh, the last uh, downturn, you had about 39 startups uh, that, were, that, were de- uh, that were deemed to be unicorns. That, that figure is now 10 times bigger. And, and billionaires are being minted, <laughs> it feels like, almost every week as, as different uh, unicorns get formed and then IPO. You know, I think the, uh, the keep in mind that the unicorns you know, during the last recession that we studied, you know, didn't exist, essentially. These are, these are new companies. They're starting up. You know, our view is, the, is that if you look at the last recession and what we studied, um, there were few digital natives that were leading their sectors. And now it's commonplace for digital natives to be leading their sectors. We just think that 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 trend is going to continue and to exacerbate in the next macroeconomic event. And that's likely to lead lead companies that are, you know, what we call digital laggards uh, at a big disadvantage. Thanks, Kevin. Um, You mentioned that there were three main differences between the last recession and what we might face in the next one. Mihir, can you talk about the other two? Uh, uh, the second big reason uh, that we think the next recession or the next uh, economic event will look different is that many companies, uh, are, you know, just don't believe that they have as much fat left to trim uh, as they did going into the last recession. We did a sort of a live survey in Davos as well as at a similar forum in, in New York uh, a few months ago. And we asked uh, the assembled group of, uh, of CEOs whether they felt that there was a significant opportunity to take cost out of the core business, uh, you know, in, in, in the wake of any, any downturn or economic event. And the answer overwhelmingly was no, right? Financial institutions are a great example of this, right? The pressure to reduce cost is something that feels like it's been part of the daily vocabulary of business for the last six, seven years. Uh, you know, add on top of that, 
the presence of activist investors and other uh, other sorts of disruptions like that. And, uh, and, and many companies feel like they're pretty far along this journey already. So you don't have the same kind of opportunity here that you did coming into the last, uh, last event. Okay, so cost-cutting is going to be more difficult because companies are already more lean. Can you say a little bit more about the third difference? Uh, the socio-political context is, uh, pre- presents some additional challenges where the playbook simply has to become a lot more sophisticated. Uh, the other reason, right, that there, are, there is a real debate happening around uh, uh, income inequality, uh, socioeconomic inequality broadly, uh, not just in the U.S., but, but across the world. There, there, there is a real uh, concern that, that, uh, that uh, companies today are, not, uh, are, are, are funneling wealth to, to uh, ever smaller uh, group of extremely wealthy individuals. And, and that is driving a debate on income inequality, which in turn means that, uh, that it, any attempt to cut costs uh, is met with a lot of activism, and, uh, and as well as a lot of uh, uh, pushback against the brand. Uh, and there are several examples of this in the, in, in, in the recent past. So, so companies today, when they think about big cost actions, whether they're cutting, whether they're cutting back on frontline jobs or, or plants, etc., do have to think through some of those second-order effects much more. You can't just go out and shut down a plant and expect that you don't get a negative regulatory government consumer and brand impact, uh, as well as an employee impact. You have to assume that that is going to happen, think through those second-order implications, and then decide if such a move is still worth it. Thanks. Um, So, Kevin, what can companies do today to prepare for a future economic downturn? I understand you've come up with a, uh, a really nice mnemonic for how people can remember this. So this is the resilience playbook that we believe is emerging, and there's two primary elements to the playbook. Uh, the first is around accelerated decision-making, and then the second is around resilience interventions. And there's three levers under each, each of these two. So it's not a laundry list of a thousand things that you need to think about. It's six um, that you really need to think about. Um, and it encapsulates a lot of the lessons learned from the previous macroeconomic uh, events, but also considers uh, the, some of the changes that will happen in the future. So of these six, uh, my understanding is that each one is a letter in the word robust. Can you take us through them? Uh, the first, the Resilience Nerve Center, you know, think of this as the, uh, the body within the organization that is formed to bring order to the chaos. Um, a resilience nerve center leverages a lot of our learnings from crisis management, from our risk practice, around stress testing, uh, the, the, uh, the P&L and the balance sheet, owning the macroeconomic scenarios, and understanding the exposure angles and, inter- and, and the timing of different interventions. The second is organization simplification. Uh, this ranges from you know, de-layering the organization uh, all the way to zero-based budgeting. Um, with the intent of not, redu- not just reducing costs, but also simplifying the organization to increase speed of movement on, on when different interventions are launched. And the third is a band of leaders. And what we mean by this is this is alignment. Uh, this is the operating model of the top team that needs to change to increase the metabolic rate of decision-making to go faster and also to understand the second and third order implications of different actions that are going to be taken. As Mihir talked about, you know, the, the environment has changed and closing a plant or offshoring something, there are implications that are different than 10 years ago um, in, in, in the last recession. So these are the three key elements 
of accelerated decision making. The three elements of, uh, of, of the uh, resilience interventions include the following. Uh, unlocking the balance sheet. Um, we saw in the last downturn, you know, the emphasis of the treasurer and balance sheet management relative to the P&L, you know, swing tremendously. And we expect that learning applies to the next macroeconomic event where cash becomes king. Um, here, uh, there's two other elements to this that are important. One is uh, divesting underperforming assets uh, is critical uh, to increasing uh, financial flexibility, but also um, also to shore up the uh, uh, shore up the balance sheet. So we would say you got to get in front of divesting underperforming assets or assets that you're no longer the natural owner of and may not uh, thrive in a downturn. Uh, and then the second is to be ready with your target list to go on the offensive on M&A uh, coming out. Uh, sharp digital program is the second lever here. So what we mean by this is everybody, every company in the world right now has got a ton of pilots going on. As a matter of fact, our, uh, our, our, our digital practice would say that uh, most companies, like 70% plus, are stuck in pilot purgatory, meaning they've got a lot of little investments going on all, all over the company. You know, our view is that uh, you're going to have to rationalize those, in, those, those pilots and probably stop a lot of them and then really double down on the few digital programs that have scale and can me meaningfully move the needle on value creation. And the last element of this is through cycle interventions. Uh, these are primarily operational and, uh, and, and revenue-based interventions. But the twist on this relative to business as usual is there's a big element of flexibility incorporated. So think about on the operation side, if you're sole sourced on your material, on your, the materials you purchase, um, you know, you're at risk that during a macroeconomic event, your suppliers could, uh, could, could not make it through. And so you need to have plans in place to not only uh, intervene to improve uh, cost and revenue, but also to make sure that you've got flexibility on both the operational uh, and the, uh, on the uh, growth side. So how do you start moving from simply reacting to the chaos of an economic, an emerging economic crisis to bringing control and order uh, to the process so you feel ready to address this external uncertainty? Uh, yeah, okay. So defining how do you actually move from business as usual to actually taking a step up from that and saying, okay, here is what, where we see the scenario going. Uh, here is what it means for the company. And therefore, in order to enable us to make faster decisions, here is how we need to operate in the wake of this disruption. So that, that's a little bit the how and probably takes some time to get right. But then you, you, you combine that with a what. That is fundamentally about saying, okay, do we have a perspective on what are the scenarios? Okay, we think that we have also done uh, some work on saying what that means for us, right? Some sort of stress test on the financials and so on. We think that is, that is, that is indeed incredibly important. Um, you know, the level of detail matters here, not just the macroeconomic effects and looking at the overall demand trend, but actually thinking about, okay, what are the trends in your sector and how are they going to play out uh, uh, if, if this particular scenario were to, were, were to happen? Uh, and, and then specific to your company as, uh, as well. Some of those are obviously more qualitative metrics, which you can get through interviews and, and, and other means rather than through direct analytics which is fine, but that is still needs to be an important part of the discussion and in evaluating a potential future scenario. So once you get to the scenario, you, you, uh, you, you, you then need to say, okay, uh, we, uh, we have a momentum case for my P&L as well as balance sheet. Now let's try and see what is the uh, opportunity uh, potentially from each of these levers to the overall balance sheet and P&L. 
And uh, you obviously end up choosing the ones that are going to be the most impactful. You focus on those and you do a little bit of a deeper dive to assess exactly what would you do? What are the initiatives that you would focus on in order to get to, uh, 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 in order to get to the most, most impact? Uh, for the company in the scenarios that 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 you are uh, that you are analyzing, that then gives you the ability to get to action, impact, and the high-level road mapping. So let me give you an example to make it come to life a little bit. Uh, you know, you start with the macroeconomic scenarios, which then give you uh, a, an understanding of what the demand in your particular sector might look like, right? And whether this is GDP or whether you have more sector-specific indices, and you say, okay. How are certain trends in the industry going to work out as this scenario comes about, and then and, and then the idiosyncratic risks? Ultimately, you want to evolve into one planning scenario that that becomes the basis for the organization to act. There's a lot of judgment involved in deciding what that planning scenario looks like, but we have seen far too many organizations that struggle with multiple scenarios, don't want to make a choice in between them, and really end up not really doing anything about it. So, so we think that planning scenario or uh, is, is, is an important basis for action in this context. So, um, so, so, so you model out your PNL, you model out your balance sheet, you size the biggest areas of opportunity, right? So for just as one example, you would say, okay, uh, here is what my PNL looks like uh, in a do-nothing case. Now let's say we apply the operational productivity levers that we, that, you know, at, at an extreme level, and we can improve productivity by 25%. What impact does that have to this to, to this planning scenario? Uh, uh, how much more will it push it up? And how does that compare to actually potentially divesting this business unit, which, by the way, is not that core to our business, right? So testing all these levers as an integrated view and having that discussion as a leadership team is an important part of establishing your your, your core strategy for dealing with resilience. And then. Uh, uh, what you do with it, of course, is important. And you know, once you decide on what are the biggest invest- investments that you want to go after, focus on uh, assembling teams against each of those, and make sure that these are outcome-based teams rather than you know teams that you that you process manage on a day-to-day basis. Uh, that are able to move faster, have a higher level of decision authority than they would normally have, are more cross-functional, and so on. And then there are weekly or biweekly decision meetings that allow the, uh, allow the leadership team to break down the silos, to uh, break down any barriers that each of these teams may be facing. What, what we think is important in this whole process is to move from what might seem like external chaos to, to having a certain way of dealing with that chaos inside the organization. And so that this resilience team ends up acting like a buffer Thanks, Mihir. Uh, Kevin, how would you advise companies to start building a resilience plan? What are some of the key steps beyond the robust framework? Um, a couple of thoughts here. The first is you got to have alignment with the top, across the top team. Uh, this has to be driven from the top down. It has to be a, a senior management team priority, or it will not. Uh, it doesn't work. Uh, the second point is around what Mihir was talking about, which is this notion of standing up the resilience nerve center. Um, to bring order to the chaos uh, is really important, and you need to staff that up with high performers that uh, can take macroeconomic scenarios, bring them down to the company level, understand how to do stress testing, and then what the diagnostics and interventions are required for the organization. Uh, the third is um, getting those initial models uh, built up uh, in order to stress test and really understand what are the biggest gaps under the planning scenario that the company has to address. So there's not a thousand things that you're doing, but there's a few, the critical few. 
And then finally, developing the governance cadence and rhythm um, with uh, across your management team uh, in order to uh, figure out how you're going to actually uh, make decisions, uh, look at data, act under uncertainty. So none of those are trivial, but we offer these as a few points, the starting points for what you need to think about if you're going to stand up a resilience program for your organization. Thanks, Kevin. How important is it, do you think, to tailor one's playbook to the industry or sector that one is operating in? I do think that the notion of the playbook needs tailoring. And, you know, we think you have to go through a thoughtful design phase, which isn't a long process, but it is an intense process to tailor the playbook to your sector and to your company. Um, And we think that's the most important thing. Um, I think post that, you could play with different scenarios and see, you know, what would be the impact uh, of different scenarios with that playbook, for for sure. Uh, But the first step is actually tailoring the playbook to your company. Let me, let me just build on that, if that's okay. And, and, and Kevin, I agree. I think the first step is absolutely to, to tailor the playbook. I, I do think the idea of a fire drill is important. And, and while we don't see, to Kevin's point, many companies do it, there are two reasons why, why you really want to, in my experience. One is the fact that leadership teams need to develop muscle memory on how do you actually behave during major uncertainties. And this muscle memory you know, especially when the the room book is breaking down, uh, you know, in an extreme recession or in any extreme disruption, really, when the rule book starts to break down, management team frequently find that the pattern recognition that they have developed over years doesn't work anymore. And uh, and, and so using uh, some of these, uh, 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 you know, fire drills as ways to surface that, frankly, surface the decision biases and surface any points of fissure that might exist between the management team on a day-to-day basis is an important part of the exercise to create that trust, to build that ability for them to operate in an extreme environment. Mihir, Kevin, thanks again. Um, Any final thoughts you'd like to end with? Um, We feel like this quote sums up resilience well, which is a quote that has been attributed to a bunch of different uh, people, Roger Bannister being one of them, who's the person that broke the uh, four-minute mile originally. And essentially the quote is, every morning in Africa, a gazelle wakes up, it's got to move faster than uh, a lion or it will not survive. And every morning a lion wakes up and it needs to move uh, faster than the slowest gazelle or it's going to starve. It doesn't matter if you're the lion or gazelle, when the sun comes up, you better be moving. And so uh, we, we offer that quote just as a, as, a, as, a, as a frame for whether you feel like you're the lion or gazelle in your industry, um, you got to get ahead of uh, planning for uh, macroeconomic events because uh, the folks that move early are those that tend to thrive and outperform for a long period of time. That's great. Uh, Kevin, Mihir, thanks again for taking the time with us today. Um, And thank you to all of our listeners. A transcript of today's podcast will be posted on McKinsey.com under the Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice website, where you will also find links to previous podcasts and links to this article. If you'd like to receive our latest updates, you can sign up for email updates on our website, follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy, or connect with our community on LinkedIn via the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. We look forward to having you join us again at another episode of Inside the Strategy Room.